Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only Sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander what they don't understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds you feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind. Autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Saviour be glory, majesty, power and authority. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. So we are in verses 5 to 10, 
have a little glance over it and you'll see some of the things we're looking to deal with this evening. One of the cries of our culture to the church of today is that if you'd only relax what you teach a bit, then you'd find yourselves a bit more relevant, a bit more exciting, a bit less peripheral to society, they say. Just loosen up your archaic ideas about truth and doctrine and and lifestyle and you might just stem the tide. You might find numbers going up again. Sometimes you hear politicians wade in and you realise they haven't got a clue what Christians are about. And it's especially complicated as they seek to understand the difference or the relationship between church and state where we have a state church. And they call on the church to fall into line with what the state thinks, for example. And yet what we saw last week and the week before in Jude is that he is writing to this church, probably the church in Ephesus, and he is intending for them, verse 3, to contend for the faith. That is what he's he's calling on them to do. That is the foundation of the letter. Remember verse 3, dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, that was his plan, Well, actually, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. Why do that? Because, Jude says, the gospel is truth. And if you lose the gospel, you lose everything. It's as if the message of the Bible is that we are all drowning at sea, and the waves are crashing around us and, and engulfing us, and we are sinking, and there is nothing we can do, and someone throws us this beautiful life jacket, and and she's going to catch it and put it on and keep holding on to it. And you see, the sea is, if you like, the just anger of God against a world in rebellion to him. He made us, he loves us, he's generous, he's gracious, but we say, God, we want your stuff, we don't really want you. And so he gives us this life jacket of the gospel to put on us. This news about Jesus, his son dying on a cross. He takes God's right anger upon himself instead of us having to. It's as if we are joined to him as we trust him. As he dies, so we die. As he is raised again, so we are raised again with him. We have life in him. He makes us new people. And yet what it seems to be going on in Jude is that if you like to stretch the metaphor a bit too far, people are beginning to kind of tinker with the life jacket. Just make it a bit more comfortable, you know. Make it look a bit nicer, a bit more attractive. And yet what actually ends up happening is that it ends up deflated and useless and not fit for purpose. And we're drowning at sea again. We put the jacket on and we're holding on to it, but it promises so much we're expecting it to float, but it doesn't. Because they've taken the power away from it. Do you remember how he seeks to encourage them at the beginning? Who's he writing to? Do you remember verse 1? They are called, they are loved, and they are kept for Jesus Christ. And they have to fight and to contend for this gospel, this life jacket. The, The security in who they are, the security from God, the fact that they have been called, are loved, and will be kept, or are being kept, doesn't mean that we don't care about the gospel. It feels slightly kind of contradiction in terms But they can have both a security in who they are and what God is like, and yet they cannot afford to be complacent. And that's why verses 5 to 10 
are a bit tricky for us. Jude wants us to rub in this truth that, okay, God is sovereign, you are safe and secure, but you can't put your defences down. You can't put your feet up. And he says, learn the lessons of history. Keep trusting the life jacket. Don't fiddle with it. Don't try and take it off. Don't change it. Keep a hold. And he lines up these four um, interesting examples in verses 5 to 9 that kind of hit it home. And then there's a final verdict, I think, in verse 10. So four examples and one final verdict. Um, I'm going to work through each example, try and help us understand what it means. Some of them are slightly obscure. Um, but then we will see, I think, that the conclusion at the end is pretty simple. So verse 5. Example number 1 of not being complacent. He says, though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who didn't believe. And here is the antidote to complacency par excellence. A number of times in the New Testament, through the human authors, God reminds us of this pattern. He reminds them that he rescued his people from his slavery, their slavery in Egypt. They called out to him, he comes and rescues them. He he gets through Pharaoh, through the Red Sea. He leads them to freedom, freedom to worship him in the desert. But within weeks, there's amnesia about how hard it was in Egypt. And, And they're grumbling and they're wishing they were slaves again. They want to go back to the place of sin, the place of captivity, the place of hardship. Now we don't exactly know what Jude is thinking of. There's a specific time that he's referring to in verse 5. There are a number of places where it could be. It happened lots. Their hearts do wander. Our hearts do wander. Maybe it was a golden calf. Do you remember Moses doesn't come down from the mountain quite quick enough and so the people before you know it of worship, are worshipping this man-made idol in the shape of a cow saying, these are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. It's almost comical if it weren't so offensive. Maybe it's later on in Numbers 14. Eventually, journeying, travelling, they reach the edge of the promised land that God has promised to Abraham But they see the enormous inhabitants. They see the fortified cities. They see the the size of the people. Their knees are knocking. They stop trusting him. And we don't know exactly when he's looking back to. But in a sense it doesn't matter at all. What matters is God rescued his people. And yet many of them ceased to trust him. They stopped believing him. And so Jude's concern is, well, so it could be here. Don't take off the life jackets. (coughs) God has rescued you. This family of believers, he's delivered you from spiritual Egypt. But will you continue to trust him? (coughs) Remember what happened in the desert. Don't turn your back on him. And there are questions that arise from that. There will be all kinds of systematic things bobbing around in your head thinking, well, hang on, (coughs) what does that mean about God's sovereignty? What does that mean about our responsibility? I'm going to say, come and grab me afterwards. But for now, just hear that warning to keep trusting him. Keep the life jacket on. 
So there's verse 5. Verse 6 is the next one. And again, it's unusual. The angels, the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. What's going on here? And I think what's most likely going on um, with verse 6 is that Jude is using <coughs> Jewish history to hit the point home. He is speaking their language, he is using stories that they will get. Um, and there are a number of different places in the Bible that talk of angels falling. It's possible that it's Genesis 6, just before the flood, when the sons of God come and intermarry. And some might think it's that. Some would go there. It's possible it's sort of talk of angels in Isaiah and Ezekiel. We get kind of tantalising glimpses of the fall of angels there. Again, it's not very um, clear or there's not much information about that. I think most likely, actually, what is going on is that these... um, He's talking about a story that was written after the Old Testament but before the New Testament. So the intertestamental period. Um, If you've got a copy of Enoch at home, then you can check it out in chapter 6, verse 1 to 6. You probably haven't. Um, That's okay. okay. Um, But the point he's making is this. The point he's making is these angels, these heavenly beings, are to be judged for not bowing the knee to God. They're to be judged for their sin and their rebellion. While so these false teachers, these mere men, seem to think they can get away with it. If these angels were how much more these men? That seems to be the analogy going on. Then on to verse 7. And this one we get, um, it's an example from Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 18 through to 19, verse 7. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So, if you track it back to Genesis 18, you will see there were five cities on the plain. Um, there was Sodom and Gomorrah, there was Admar, there was Zeboim, they were all destroyed. Then there was Zoar, which was spared, interestingly, Lot had taken refuge there. And in fact, the plain was a beautiful place to live. Lot chose to live there, we're told, because he saw the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land. We'll think more about that in a bit. Uh, the final example, um, in verse 9, is a, um, verse 8 and 9, is a slightly obscure one. Um, Have a look at verse 9. So, even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Maybe you're scratching your head slightly, thinking, I'm sure I know my Bible as well as I thought I did. Um, It is a strange bit. And actually, if you look back at when the Bible was put together, if you like, the canon of Scripture, there were heated discussions about whether Jude would make it into the Bible because of actually verses like this. And he is referring to an example very clearly from outside the Scriptures. Um, And that can be a problem for some. Just three little thoughts on the way past of that. Um... 
First thing to say is that in lots of places in the Bible, the writers refer to non-biblical books. Okay, so if you've read 1 and 2 Kings, um, you might remember the refrain, are, are they not written in the books of the annals of the kings of Judah? Thinking, I don't know. Um, I've not read it, and I don't think we have it. Um, and you'd be right. Where can I get my hands on the annals of the kings of Judah? Hmm. Um, so the first thing to say is that, that actually this is not an unusual thing. There are lots of books that we're very happy to have in there um, that would say something similar. The second one, I think, is to say that just because he quotes it, it doesn't mean he endorses it. That it doesn't mean we should add in um, what is sort of apocalyptic Jewish writing to our scriptures because Jude (laughs) refers to it. It may simply be he is making a point um, from an example, from their literature that they were familiar with. Second thing to say... um, And the third thing to say as well is that it comes in a line of other examples, so we're not kind of scrabbling around in the dirt trying to think, what's he saying here, what's going on, try and unpack it, because actually um, we know the point, because he's saying the same thing again and again and again, um, but just from a slightly different angle, or having them see exactly what it is he is saying. And maybe your question there is, well, what is the point, what is the angle that he is trying to make? And here we go. The background is this, that there are apparently a number of different Jewish apocalyptic writings, and I think apparently many of them grew out of Deuteronomy 34, verse 5 to 6. So I'm going to suggest we look it up. I'd like to check I've got the right verse. There we go. So apparently this is where a lot of this comes from. Here's a thing to um, (coughs) excite your friends with at parties. Um, And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in Moab, in the valley opposite Beth Peor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Okay, so Moses dies. Who buries Moses? God. That seems to be the answer. Um... And so, from this kind of rather touching account, grew a tradition and a story where the bottom line was this. There's this argument about Moses getting into heaven. It's also slightly shady, we're not quite sure. Anyway, there's this argument about Moses getting into heaven. Why can Moses not get into heaven? Well, because he is not perfect. You see that in Exodus. You see a number of times that he kind of mucks up and gets stuff wrong. He hits hits the stone rather than doing the stuff he's told to. And so Satan, the accuser, comes in and says, well, Moses can't get into heaven because he is not perfect, which would be right. Um, And Michael, the archangel, would also struggle with the idea of imperfection being in God's holy place. So there's this fundamental issue of imperfect Moses getting into heaven, basically. And yet what these stories tell us, while Satan is gleefully accusing Moses of slander, Michael the angel leaves God as the judge and to Satan he says, the Lord rebuke you. So that's the kind of basis of the story. But the basic summary is this. Michael is an angel, a celestial being who respectfully did not dare to make a comment about right and wrong. He did not judge Moses but he left that judging to God. 
Here Michael was not prepared to put himself in the place of God and to judge. And yet these false teachers in Jude, these mere people, are doing that. They are putting themselves in the place of God and are deciding what is right and wrong. Get that back in verse 8 just before. They are happily calling the morality shots. We saw it last week, verse 4. They pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. So where Michael was not prepared to do that in terms of judging Moses, well, so these people are prepared to judge morality. These people are prepared to put themselves in the place of God. And the conclusion, the verdict then at the end, is verse 10. These people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. That seems to be the conclusion. Let's just try and unpack it again, because it's slightly complicated, and there's all kinds of stuff going on. There's a contrast at the heart of it, you see. They do not understand some things, but they do understand other things. What are the things that they do not understand? Well, I take it from the context so far, they do not understand particularly God's grace. They do not understand the outworking of the gospel, and so they speak against it and they slander it. Again, verse 4, they have perverted the grace of our God into a license for morality and deny Jesus Christ, their only sovereign and Lord. So they do not understand what it means that God is the God of grace and that we are forgiven and yet the implications for how we live off the back of that. That's the first half of verse 10. But they do understand some things, second half of verse 10. They do understand by instinct, as the rational animals do, which will destroy them. What are those things that they do understand by instinct, like irrational animals, which will end up destroying them? Well, I think those things are probably instinctive and animal behaviours, which is possibly, again, a reference um, to kind of immorality, particularly sexual immorality. I think probably that's what's going on. And the result of that is that they will be judged for it. They will be destroyed by it. Okay, so they slander theology they don't understand, wrong doctrine. The things they do understand, like how to instinctively sin in the flesh. They're good at that, but that will destroy them. Their lifestyle is wrong. So doctrine and lifestyle, I think, is what's going on. What they believe and what they do, again. And so they will be judged. I warned you, didn't I? It's going to be a tricky one. It's slightly complicated. There's some interesting verses. Now, I just want to pull back slightly and just give three kind of thoughts and reflections in particular on things that have perhaps slightly broader kind of sweep um, things that we maybe pick up. The first thing to say is this, and I say it carefully, but we must not be overconfident or complacent. We must get this as something, I don't want to say a balance, but the right perspective on it. God is in charge we can be confident that we've been called and loved and kept. He is sovereign. He chooses his people. But it seems to me these verses are here in part to stop us from being complacent. 
little while ago I read something um, asking a question to say, why are people saved? And there were four, four answers. Um, the first one is this, people are saved because they trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. Second answer, people are saved because the Holy Spirit opens their hearts to the Gospel. Thirdly, people are saved because Christ died and rose to save them. Fourthly, people are saved because the Father chose them for salvation before creation. Which one would you go for? All of the above, thank you. It's a trick question, of course. They are all true. And yet our problem in some senses is we have this struggle with sort of tension or paradox. And so when it comes to things like salvation, we we so easily flip-flop either way and we get it wrong. From one extreme, well, it's all about me and I must do everything and I must work, work, work and fill my life full of stuff to make God pleased with me, to try and reduce my shame by myself a bit. And the other way is, well, it's all right, just chill. So if it's all decided beforehand, why bother praying? Why bother doing anything if God is sovereign? Why bother reading my Bible? He knew I wasn't going to anyway today, so that's okay, isn't it? And yet the thing to see is that there's no room for this kind of complacency. From our perspective, we keep the life jacket on and we don't fiddle with it. We keep trusting him. Whereas he says, just remember the generation rescued from Egypt. Just remember the fallen angels. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember Michael and Satan. It is God's place to judge and he will judge. Keep the life jacket on, will you please? As soon as we begin to look back at a decision we made, or we look back at past blessings, and those things are our only security, that thing that happened last month or last year or last decade or last century, then we're in danger. I think the New Testament would say to us, trust Jesus today. Look to the cross today. Live as a Christian today. Fight sin today. And don't be complacent Maybe that's a prayer for each morning, each and every morning of this year. Lord, help us please to trust you today. Help us please to remember the gospel today. Rather than a complacency, it means that we wander. It seems to me the New Testament, again and again and again, will have these warnings and we will struggle with them. But those warnings are there to keep us trusting in part. Those warnings are there to keep us looking to him, the one who makes promises. I'll say trust him today. That's the first thought. The second, and this is obvious, and again it's something about the nature of our hearts that are deceitful, which means we struggle with this. And that is, judgment is real. God does hate sin. He is holy. And I shouldn't need to say that in one sense. But another I do because there are various books out there, there are various teachers out there, there would be various churches out there that would deny that truth. And yet these verses are painfully clear 
Jude likes his repetition. Destruction or judgment are there in verse 5, verse 6, verse 7 and verse 10. And so we must continue to submit ourselves to him and his word, even if we don't like it, even if our hearts kind of pull away from it. We must continue to to be mindful of it. One person said this, they said, I cannot preach on hell unless I preach with tears. That's helpful. It's okay to be honest about the reality of the struggles that we have because we love people and we want them to put the life jacket on. We want them to see they are in the stormy, choppy sea and they need to trust him. So one is, don't be complacent. Two is, don't deny judgment. Number three is, Don't use the gospel as a license for sin. That's the story that we're kind of building up week on week of these false teachers. They seem to have tweaked or changed what they believe perhaps to justify how they want to live again. Verse 4 seems to be at the heart of what is going on here in lots of ways. Often we think it's the other way around and it is the other way around often. That is... I believe stuff in my head and that will impact how I live. But actually often it's the other way around too. I want to live like this, so I will believe stuff in my head. I will change my theology to fit in with the lifestyle I want to live. My heart is deceitful and I want to live this way, so I will tweak what I believe about God. I've had friends who have done it. Multiple friends who have done it. They want to be God. They want to define right and wrong. They want to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so they don't listen to him anymore. Like these guys here, verse 8, they reject authority. They close their ears to what God says, perhaps. It's the colleague who says, well, actually I like to think of God as like this which is generally them making God in their own image rather than them being made in his image. And the God you usually end up with is a God who just doesn't really disagree with you and actually wants you to um, do what you want to do in the first place. And there is always grace and there is always love and always forgiveness, but if you ever get to a point where you are deliberately not listening to what God says on something... You are deliberately closing your ears or you are deliberately closing your eyes or sticking your head in the sand and not listening. If ever we get to that point, and it can be a temptation because hearts are deceitful, then I take it we have real cause for alarm. Because the next step is, next step is we will tweak the gospel and we will take off the life jacket. And we will walk away from life. Let me pray for us. Father, we confess we find verses like this hard. We find them hard because they're just a bit confusing and there are examples that we aren't familiar with. There are bits from outside the scriptures that we wrestle with.
But we find them hard too because they are full of the reality of your justice and judgment against sin. And you know how our hearts can hide from that. You know how we can wrestle with that. You know how how unlike our world that truth is. And so we we finish these verses so thankful for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he took your anger against us upon himself. Thank you that we can find refuge in him. Thank you that we can find life in him. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness, your kindness and your goodness. Thank you that you love us so much that he was prepared to die for people like us. Lord, might we trust him each day, please. As long as it is called called today, would we be people who trust the Lord Jesus. Guard us from wandering. Guard us from drifting after other things. Guard us from the deceitful nature of our hearts which will so easily seek to tweak who you are, the truths of your word, to make you more palatable. Guard us, we pray, and keep our eyes fixed on Christ. In his name. Amen. Amen.